Section 13. Personal Recollections of Early Melbourne and Victoria. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Lucy Burgoyne. Personal Recollections of Early Melbourne and Victoria by William Westgarth. Section 13. Cheap Living. All cheering plenty, with his flowing horn, led yellow autumn, wreathed with nodding corn. Burns. After the first few years of disturbing land speculation, and a too general extravagance of living, we settled down into a frugal folk, of moderate but steady prosperity, which lasted up to the general unsettlement of everything by the gold, the general moderation, and the cheap and plenty time that characterised it, culminated in 1844, when bread was fourpence, the four-pound loaf, rich fresh butter, threepence a pound, and beef and mutton one penny. A good managing lady, with whom I lodged in that year, told me one day at dinner that a savoury dish we were enjoying was a bullock's head, got for nothing from her butcher, and with which she hoped to keep the house for yet two more days. Shortly before this, when my friend Fennel and I housed together at the west end of the town, we sent one day to the neighbouring slaughtering place, where the custom was to sell by retail to the public the legs of mutton at fivepence each, as they had comparatively so little of tallow for boiling down. We duly got one, cooked it, and found it was good. No doubt it was in very great measure because money was scarce and dear that nearly everything was thus cheap. I recollect the sale by auction at that time of a vacant half-acre allotment in Central Collins Street, next to that on which Mr. George James, wine merchant, had very early erected his surpassing brick office and dwelling. After some slight competition, the allotment put up, I think, at the upset price of £300, was bought by Mr. Edmund Westby, for three hundred and forty-four pounds. The amount is impressed upon me, because I wondered at the time that anyone should thus throw away so much good money, but my friend Westby reckoned the future more accurately than I did, for within nine years after this price was hardly the five-hundredth part of the value. To cap the whole tale, the lot was, I think, in the hands of government from having been abandoned by the original buyer, who had forfeited his deposit rather than complete his supposed bad bargain. According to my recollection, the first of our sober community to set up a carriage and pair was Mr. Henry Moore, above alluded to. Even his honour, the superintendent, had no such luxury at that time. I remember looking up at that vehicle with a sense of awe, possibly not without envy, at what was to most of us the entirely unattainable. I speak of the real Hyde Park Corner article, and not the old Shanredon, 
with which some remote squatter might at times have galloped into town, poising himself with practised and need adroitness on nature's bush track, behind a pair or more of the hundreds of nags on his run. I must accept also those said anomalous early years, for I recollect sallying forth in 1841 from my little lodging in Lonsdale Street, opposite the old jail, then being erected to Mr. John Hunter Patterson, a spirited colonist of the earliest times, drive his splendid four-in-hand through the trackless bush into town from the direction of the Mooney Ponds. RELIGION INTERESTS Our small society, in its upward struggle, received a distinctly great impetuous for good by the accession in 1848 of the first Lord Bishop of the colony, Dr. Charles Perry. He exhibited a rare energy in the cause of his divine master, and he frankly and genially sought and recognised that master's church far beyond the pale of the bishop's own section of it, so far at least as the rules of that section would permit but the good bishop, liberal as he was in one direction, yet failed to reach the full width of colonial sentiment in that respect, when he refused to reciprocate the courtesy visit of his Roman Catholic brother. He is credited with having given his reason, namely that, in his view, the Roman church belonged to the synagogue of Satan, surely a very venturesome assertion of so vast a part of Christianity, and of the power and civilization of the world. We might say at times of bishops, as is so often said of judges, that when they have to make any unusual or unexpected decision, they had best not give the reasons. I witnessed a very different sense of duty, and one to which I must confess a preference when we were at Lugano an inland town of Tenerife, situated a few miles from Santa Cruz, where our good Coptic halted for six hours to replenish her coal, thus permitting her passengers a sure excursion. A polite elderly gentleman, apparently the sole occupant of the Lugano Hotel, whose decidedly clerical aspect, together with that simple white neck band which Catholics claim is solely their own, made us at once set down as Roman, invited us to look through the inevitable cathedral, the only sight of the place. But we found our mistake when he took occasion to allude to our dear Roman Catholic brethren. We then adjudged him to be a broad-minded Anglican, which was correct, for, as he afterwards told us, he was an ex-Navy chaplain. The German Immigration. Go then forth, and fortune play upon thy prosperous helm. Second part, Henry the Fourth. When I made my first home trip in 1847, I resolved to open, if I possibly could, German emigration to Port Phillip. Quite a number had already been settled, some from the earliest years, in South Australia, where their industry frugality, sobriety, and general good conduct had made them excellent colonists. 
This favourable testimony was confirmed to me by correspondence on the subject with my late much-lamented friend, Alexander L. Elder, one of South Australia's earliest, most esteemed, and most successful colonists. My first step on arrival was to write to the commissioners of emigration, an officiate since dispensed with, pointing out this South Australian success, and suggesting that a certain charge upon the colonial land fund, authorised in special cases of emigrants, an aid of eighteen pounds a head, I think might be made applicable to German vine-dressers emigrating to Port Phillip. In due course I received a most cordial reply from the secretary, Mr. Afterwards Sir Stephen Walcott, to the effect that Lord Grey, then Colonial Secretary, highly approved of the project, and that the aid asked for would be forthcoming for properly qualified German vine-dressers. Armed with this letter, I went to Hamburg, with introductions to Messrs. John Caesar, Godefroy, and Son, at that time the chief ship-owners of the city. They were evidently well disposed, and had been, I think, concerned in the previous outflow to Adelaide, as they referred me to Mr. Edward Delius, of Bremen, who had been an agent in the work. My visit to Delius resulted in my proceeding at once to Silesia, where I got as far as Legnitz, whose gilded or tin-covered minarets reminded me that I was approaching a fanciful or gorgeous east. Here I met a number of the peasantry, all eager to hear about Australia, friends of some of them being already there. Hearing that a Moravian headquarters was also there, I introduced myself, stating that I was a subject of and personally acquainted with their brother Moravian, Mr. Latrobe, our superintendent. I found other Latrobes there, his relatives or namesakes. Several of the bodies spoke good English, and so I got fairly on with the peasantry, explaining as to the class entitled to the assistance in emigrating, and that to vine-dressers only would the aid apply so as to enable the Messrs. Godefroy to give them a free passage. I left them with the understanding that they would make up a party and communicate with Delius. About six months later I went again to Hamburg, this time to see the first party away. They were in a good deal of trouble, for most of them, in spite of all advice, had clung to old family lumber, things mostly quite unsuited to Australia, and the carriage cost of which drained their narrow means at every stage. But, worst of all, the cholera was then raging in Hamburg, and it attacked several of the party during some few days, while they waited, under such shelter as they could improvise, until the ship could take them. Delius and I visited them, to cheer them with the near prospect of the sunshine and plenty of Australia. A rather motley crew was the first German party landed at Melbourne. I fear they were not all vine-dressers, but the difficulty was to get them to describe themselves as such, even when they were so. This was also as hard upon them as for an Indian 
Brahman, to write himself down a low-caste Hindu. Upon any pretense they would class themselves as of some trade, and one, who doubtless expected great things from it, entered himself, to the serious damage of our case, as doctor of philosophy. There was considerable difficulty and delay in getting the grant. Mr. Latrobe helped us as much as he conscientiously could. Of course, the said doctor had to be excluded, and others with him, but eventually a substantial sum was handed to the shippers, sufficient to encourage them to continue the business. Several expeditions, larger or smaller, followed. I have no record of their total. One of their great delights was the superabundance of fresh beef and mutton. Our ever-active colonists, Dr. Thompson of Geelong, who took great interest in Germans, invited a party of them, just arrived, to Geelong, where he gave them a supper upon the grass around his pretty residence, killing and roasting a large fat sheep, and serving out chops and all the rest of it, ad libitum. One man was noticed to have eaten a couple of pounds weight right off, and no doubt he felt, in consequence, like the boy in punch, just as though his jacket were buttoned. My late esteemed friend, Mr. Otto Niehaus, himself one of the emigrating throng, although not of the very first party, gave me, from his complete mastery of English, most material helping in managing their affairs. I had afterwards the pleasant duty of recommending him to our first colonial secretary, Captain Lonsdale, for a justiceship of the peace, to the great satisfaction and convenience of his co-emigrant countrymen. I am under much like obligation also to Mr. Bra, who long acted, and I hope still acts, as a solicitor amongst the Germans. But the grand prize for these Germans was the acquisition of land. Accordingly, Captain Stanley Carr, then on a visit with the German prince of Schleswig-Holstein, and myself took up, in trust for such Germans as desired it, and had the means of payment, one of the square miles of surveyed land, as yet unapplied for, about twelve miles north of Melbourne, which was divided amongst them in lots as agreed upon. And there they are, to this day, a thriving community. When, in company with Nurhouse, my wife and I visited them in 1857, just before finally quitting the colony, we found considerable progress in the form of a scattered village, with a little Lutheran church, and some show of gardening and cultivation. They seemed delighted to stick to their German speaking, and would not even try to speak English. One amusing feature in the scramble as to allotments was that each tried, in most cases, to get trees, stones, and rocks in preference to clear ground, as if so much additional wealth. The trees might have had value for firewood, but in the other items they had probably more than they bargained for. We secured the land for them at a pound an acre, and the fact of their being so largely settled upon it raised its value at once considerably.
All the land thereabouts has now risen to many times this first cost. Many more Germans have since, as I understand, settled upon other land. The exact value of the German immigration to Australia may be to us a differing estimate, but I think we mostly give it a decided welcome. Lord Grey, as I recollect, was attacked in Parliament by the political opposition for thus spending money on foreigners, which might have better gone to our own destitute, etc., etc. And I myself was repeatedly so attacked, but always in a like merely political opposite way, when anything is let fly at an opponent that will serve the momentary purpose. In the heat of the O'Shaughnessy contest for Melbourne, for instance, I was accused of having told the Cilician peasants that they were wanted to set an example of sobriety to the drunken Irish, but I easily escaped from that noose by the rejoinder that, if I did say anything of the kind, it must have been of my own countrymen, as an Irishman can never stand to a Highlander at whisky. The true point of the question is the denationalising of our race which is so seriously threatened, for example, by the import of Chinese. We know that something of French, Flemish, Dutch, and Danish Norse, along with a leading dash of German, all grafted on the old British stock, having evolved the modern Englishman. Substantially, therefore, we are only reopening this useful manufacture, which was effectively begun for England fifteen centuries back. The German Prince Come of a gentle, kind and noble stock. Pericles One of the pleasant incidents to vary our social life was the arrival in 1850 of the young Prince of Schleswig-Holstein, to whom there occurred, during the German dynastic confusion that followed the revolutionary year 1848, an opportunity to see the world. Accompanied by his guardian, Captain Stanley Carr, he arrived by one of Mrs. Godfrey's ships from Hamburg, having been swayed to some extent in selection of travel route by the fact of German emigration to Port Phillip, having commenced the year before through the same firm. The prince, who was then only of the age of nineteen, and a most amiable and ingenuous look, had that charm of the true politeness of his years, which left you the impression that he thought that every one was to be preferred to himself. If unfortunate in the chances of the struggle in being dropped out of his principality, he was afterwards compensated in another direction, for not only is his younger brother our Queen's son-in-law, but one of his daughters is today Empress of Germany. What a reminder of such changes of the swift passing of time and of the crowd of potentious events in these quick speeding years. The prince and his guardian landed, as it were, in my arms my virtue both of introductions from the Godfrey's, and of my position as virtual parental head of the German flock which had begun to stream into Port Phillip. Unacquainted myself with the language, I was able and untiringly helped, 
as I have said, by my late friend, Mr. Nowhouse. The prince took the thin disguise of Lieutenant Grainwald, but I never heard that name except in Captain Carr's official intimation. We all called him the prince, but he was equally courteous and unassuming whatever way we addressed him. It was quite touching to see the harmony that existed between ward and guardian, the one looking up to his sage mentor with the trustful tractability of a child, the other reciprocating high regard out of the depths of the ultra-Tory sentiment with which long residence within German court vicinities, and perhaps a natural turn of mind, had imbued him. We have been apprised for this still lingering German high sentiment by hearing at times of the late Emperor Frederick's habit, when Crown Prince, of calling the princess wife and of asking, when looking for her, where is his wife, was a transgression of court etiquette, so appalling as well nigh to send the queried parties off into a fit. There was another amusing illustration from Captain Carr. He came to me once very considerably disconcerted by the report of a public meeting the day before, at which he, oblivious for the moment of the inevitable, omnipresent English free press, had offered some remarks, the Argus, under the undiscriminating democratic pen of Kerr, its editor, had reported that Captain Stanley Carr had told the meeting that the King of Prussia had told him so-and-so, whereas, as Carr sorrowfully complained, the proper expression should have been that an exalted personage in Prussia had led him to understand so-and-so. But, added my friend, with manifest comfort, the departure from propriety was so flagrant that, if the report did happen to reach the king's eyes, he would never believe it of him. Both distinguished visitors honoured me and two of my sisters, who had by this time followed their brother to the land of promise, with a few days' residence at our cottage, with its garden so full of fruit, upon the Merry Creek. When so many other invitations pressed, we were in honour bound to this time limitation. They were easily entertained with such few elegancies as we could then boast of, but we were bound also, even in mere good feeling to surrounding ambitious maidens, to get up a ball in the prince's honour. I had my task in discriminating the comparative few of the fair hands that could possibly be called in that of the guest, for even a prince could not dance for ever, so as to overtake all. On the prince's part, every successive hand was accepted with equal readiness, and every favoured maiden was duly encouraged, all discouraged, by faultlessly impartial courtesy. End of section 13